You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. The reading today is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 to 31. Unity and diversity in the body. Just as the body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts come from one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. And so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honourable, we treat with special honour. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together giving greater honour to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? 
Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. Great, thanks, Anne. Um, yeah, Simon said we have a church forum uh, today, so we are going to endeavour to be finished by 12 o'clock, so I will be keeping an eye on my watch. Um, as I was thinking about what time it was and how long we had to go, it reminded me of that old joke about the... Um, you must know this one. A minister stands up and he walks up to the front and then he gets his notes out and he puts them on the on the front there. And uh, a little boy says to his dad, "What does that mean, Dad?" And he says, "Oh, well, he's you know he's got his notes and he's he's laying them out so he knows what he's going to say." And then the minister gets a water bottle and drinks of it and puts it down next to him. And the little boy says, "What does that mean, Dad?" And uh, he says, "Oh, well, it's quite difficult when you're talking for you know half an hour without stopping. You know, it's uh, your throat gets dry. You might need some water." And then the minister takes his watch off and he puts it down in front of him. And the little boy says, "What does that mean, Dad?" And the dad goes, "Absolutely nothing whatsoever." Um, <laughs> sorry, I said that we were trying to be short today and I've wasted the first minute by just telling a joke that I thought of. Um, so yeah, we're looking at this idea of what it means to go together as the third in our 2030 vision series. But before that, a quick story about a football team that had just lost a match. The coach was incredibly frustrated. The players were frustrated. They trudged back into the changing room. They were better than the team that they just played against, miles better, but they had been well beaten. The coach stood up, he turned around to this group of players, she thought about giving some stirring speech that would make sure they were better the following week, but instead she just said, Monday evening, extra training, I want you all there. Monday comes, all 22 players walk into the changing room, they sit around the benches on the side and the coach says, right, here's a piece of A4 paper and here's a pen, write down name on it, scrunch it into a ball, throw it into the middle of the room. The girls do what they're told. They throw the paper in the middle of the room. And the coach says, right, you've got two minutes to find your own name. Go. Coach presses go on the stopwatch. All the kids run into the middle of the room. They're all searching. Get to the end of the two minutes. The coach blows the whistle. How many of you got the paper? Three out of 22 have got their hands up in the air. Coach says, right, you three. Scrumple your names up again, throw it into the middle of the room. This time, you've only got one minute, but there's a slightly different command. Pick up the paper, find the girl's name on it, give the four piece of paper to that girl. A minute later, every one of the 22 is standing there holding a piece of paper with their name on it. And the coach says, this was the problem on Saturday. On Saturday, you spent the whole match looking for your own piece of paper. You only win if you look for each other's. We've spent a lot of time over these last couple of weeks talking about future, vision, where we go. I talked on week one about what it means to go deeper. How can we add depth to our relationships and how can we add depth and sustainability to the work that we're doing in this community over the next seven years? Last week, Jill talked brilliantly. If you have listened to that, it'll be on the podcast or on Facebook about what it means to go further. This idea that even though we've done a lot in the last 10 years and even though we do want to add some of this depth, we don't want to do that at the expense 
sense of continuing to take chances, continuing to try and be positive and proactive and do more things and different things? How can we go further? And today, I'm going to talk very briefly about what it means to go together, because that going deeper stuff and that going further stuff, it can only work if we are doing it together, if we are looking for each other's name and each other's piece of paper. We are going to try and finish by midday because then we're going to have our church forum. And again, the reason that we've done that today is if we're talking about going together, it felt a bit strange that we might talk about going together, but actually it was just me talking about going together and how one person would be talking at you about how we're going to go together, which didn't really seem like it would fit. So we're going to aim to finish by midday. And at that point, Dave Parr is at the back, who most of you will know is on our leadership team here and also is the chief exec of Oasis. He's going to grab a microphone as well, and then we'll send some around for any questions or ideas or thoughts that you might have. If you're not the kind of person who likes talking into a microphone, we've also got some paper and some pens here, and we'll pass those around as we take the offering at the end of this service. So any ideas or questions or thoughts that you might have about what it means to transform this community and what we can do and what role we can play in that over the next seven years, that's what we'll be discussing in that church forum. But a few thoughts about this passage that Anne read to us before we get there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Most of you will know that this is a letter written to a church in a place called Corinth by a guy called Paul, who was one of the early church leaders. Um, A couple of weeks ago, when I did that Going Deeper uh, talk, I talked about another of Paul's letters to a similar church in Ephesus. Um, 1 Corinthians is a really interesting letter. Back in the book of Acts, a bit earlier in the New Testament, it tells us that Paul had started this church in Corinth when he spent about 18 months there. But after he left, things started to go a bit wrong. Now, Corinth was a thriving city. It hosted what was called the Isthmian Games, which is a bit of a precursor to the Olympics. And it was on a crossroads, which was a vital trade link, which meant that it grew really quickly as a city. And it had a thriving commercial center, but it had loads of problems as well. It was a city with a lot of people, with a lot of money, but not that many morals. One theologian that I read said it was a bit like a cross between London, Las Vegas, and Amsterdam. It was mainly known, more than anything else, for its lack of sexual ethics, a theologian wrote. In fact, they used to use a word which we would translate as Corinthing, which meant that someone was sleeping around. So if you found out that someone was sleeping around, you'd say, oh, he's Corinthing. This was what it was known for, more than anything else. So you've got all this money... Loads of people come in there, not just for the trade, but also for these Isthmian games. You've got people settling there. You've got this background of kind of a lack of sexual effort. You've got poor people. You've got rich people. You've got all this stuff going on. And all of these people from all of these different backgrounds arrive at this new church in Corinth. And the church was struggling with a number of issues, arguments between people in the church. What was they called false teaching, or was it false teaching? Who was kind of saying the things that Paul would have said if he was still here? And also that issue of sexual ethics. I mean, arguments, false teaching, and sex. It's good to see that the church has sorted all of that out over the last couple of thousand years, isn't it? Don't have any problems with any of those kind of things anymore, do we? So Paul writes this letter And it's mainly written to challenge this type of behavior. It was a difficult time. This new community had been formed. All these people who'd 
believed all these stories of Jesus and wanted to commit their lives to following his example. But a bit like what I said about Ephesus, these people were coming from different backgrounds, some Jewish people who had spent their life following the Jewish faith, born and bred Israelites who followed the law. Then there were some Gentiles, non-Jewish people who were much more influenced by Greek philosophy and didn't really know anything about Jewish law. But even if they did, they definitely wouldn't have followed it. There were rich people and poor people. There were slaves and free people. There were women who were being given the opportunity to step up in such a way that wouldn't have been allowed anywhere else in Corinthian society, let alone in religious society. So all of these people, this strange mix of people, they all want to follow Jesus. and They've got to try and work out how to do it together. Unsurprisingly, they soon fall out over a few things about what it means to do church So Paul is writing to them to settle these arguments, and towards the end of this letter, he uses this example of a body with many parts to try and get his point across. He says that body has many parts, but all of these parts join together to make up one body, and it's the same with you. You're all different, but you together have to make up this church community. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that this analogy of a body with many parts would have been common to the people who had read this letter. It was used in letters all the time, but there was a crucial difference in what Paul was saying. It was usually used, this idea of a body of many parts, to reinforce that the people who were in power were in power and should stay in power. So, what it would normally say is, you see, you people over here, you're like a finger. You're not really that important. But me, I'm like the brain. And, you know, you can't do anything without a brain. And that's why, as the powerful person, I should stay in charge of all this. And you should really stay down there. Because really, you can cope without a finger, but you, you can't cope without me because I'm the brain. Now, that is what people would have been expecting to hear when they read this letter. He starts this analogy, and the people would have been sitting there listening, thinking, oh, I know where where this is going to go. The rich, the powerful, the well-to-do, they are the one who should be calling the shots in this church. If we have a problem, we should go to the rich and the powerful, and they should make the call. But then that's not where Paul goes with it. The body is not made up of one part, but of many God's placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. There are many parts, but one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Paul is saying you're all needed to be part of this community. We're dependent on each other, and we are better together. Regardless of where you've come from, regardless of status, of power, of poverty, there's a role for you to play in this. There's a role for all of you in this community. And the interesting thing is if you dig into these words a bit more, Paul actually says two different things which work together. So here's verses 14 to 20, that bit about the body not being made up of one part, but of many. In this bit, Paul is saying that we need difference. We need different roles. We need different people to play those different roles. If the whole body were an eye, what good would that be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Paul is saying that diversity in a group of people is a good thing. 
The first time I was a manager of any team, I was about 25 years old and I was working for this marketing consultancy and I needed to employ a few people who would work in my office of this consultancy. I heard somebody say recently that no one should be allowed to call themselves a consultant or anything if they're under 30 and having had a job as a consultant when I was 25, I totally agree. But I had... So I was employing these marketing officers to work for me. And the first round of interviews that we had, we had two candidates who were brilliant, really good. The first one was the person that I thought should get the job. She was very similar to me, studied the same thing at university, similar background. She'd worked for lots of different arts venues. It was an arts marketing consultancy, and she'd been the marketing manager for a couple of arts venues that were kind of getting bigger and bigger as she was getting these jobs. And then she was looking for the next step up which was this job at this consultancy. And I thought she was great. She answered the questions the way that I would have wanted her to answer the questions. She did everything in the interview the way I was expecting the right person to do the job. And then there was a girl called Melanie who also applied. Now, Melanie's background wasn't in marketing. It was in graphic design. And her skill set was totally different to mine. And her experience was totally different to mine. And when we got into the bit at the end and we were deliberating between the people, I was saying, oh yeah, first person should definitely get it. She was brilliant. She answered the questions in the right way. But then the person that I was interviewing with, who was much older, much more experienced than the kind of person who really should have the word consultant after their name, not a 25-year-old who didn't really know a lot, she said, well, what would be the point in employing the first person? Because like you said, she answered the questions in the way that you thought she should. If you're building a team... We don't need another one of you. We should take the second person because her skill set is complementary to you and she will grow this team in a different way. We did take that person on and we were much better for it. There's another thing that Paul was saying. Verses 21 to 26. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And then he goes on to say, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. But if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. This bit is slightly different. There's a little bit of nuance here, which makes it slightly different to that first bit that I read. In the first bit, Paul is talking about how we all have different roles to play. But here he's saying that we all need each other. We are interdependent. Proper theologians will tell you that Paul wrote this bit directly in response to what was happening in the leadership of the church in Corinth. That those who thought they knew it all were acting like they were better than the rest. But Paul is telling a different story. Whoever you are, we need each other. Whoever you are, whatever your role is in this, we need each other. This only works if we are interdependent. And then the last part of this, verses 28 to 30. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing. What's interesting about this bit, for me, is particularly that first bit. God has placed in the church apostles, prophets, teachers, and all the rest. Now, there are some words here that you might expect to see that aren't there. And those words are deacons and elders. So in loads of these letters, in loads of these emerging churches, these church communities that were starting up, they would talk about the leadership structure and they would talk about deacons and elders. They were the people who were leading these congregations. 
Sometimes it would be called overseers as well. But there's none of that here. Everyone has a role to play, not just leaders. Paul isn't saying that the ideal congregation should be leaderless, but he is saying that there is something more important here than hierarchy. There's something more important here, and that is that everybody plays their own individual role that they are skilled to in these communities. I've been thinking quite a lot about the idea of church leadership this week, um, partly because of the story that's come out about Mike Pilavacci. Some of you, I don't know if you know this story, he was a um, uh, he's the, the guy who set up a, a big Christian festival called Soul Survivor. And for those of you who have been in difficult situations with churches and church leadership teams, this might be a, a difficult kind of conversation to have. And if that is you, then do please come and grab me or somebody that, that you trust that you can have a chat to at the end of the, this service. But Mike Pilavacci, there's been an investigation into him for the last uh, couple of months now. Loads of allegations of inappropriate behavior going back over 40 years or so. But the thing is that while this inappropriate behavior was going on, he was leading an organization called Soul Survivor. How many of us have been to Soul Survivor over the years? I reckon that's probably half of the congregation, which is probably typical of lots of congregations around the country, which shows kind of the influence that that organization had. Um, and that's part of the reason why, despite all of these allegations, that he carried on in leadership until the last couple of weeks. Now, I'm not going to talk about him or his kind of personal ethic or anything else like that, but I just wondered about that idea of the issue of leadership. The Church of England statement said that these patterns of abuse had been going on for four decades and no one felt like they could speak out. And Mike Pilavacci isn't the first kind of prominent leader, not even the first prominent leader in the last couple of years where this has come out, similar things have come out. I was just writing down a list and names like Mark Driscoll that you might have heard, Ravi Zacharias, Jean Varnier, there are loads of people who have been in similar situations where they have been placed on a pedestal, they've got these leadership capacity, they've got this leadership ability and therefore they've been placed on a pedestal and what you see underneath that isn't exactly what you see on this public forum but because of this position that they hold within the church or within the Christian structure in which they're in, nobody feels that they can stand up and say anything about that. Like I said, I'm not going to speak to the personality of Mike Pilavacci or any of those people because I wonder whether there's something else going on here. I think there's a structural problem with the way that lots of these big evangelical churches and organizations are set up. There is a massive emphasis on the public figure at the front of this, which allows them to get away with some of these things. I think if we are genuinely going to go together, we need to be able to, honest, to be honest with each other, but we also need to be able to be honest with our leaders. And that is why the third of these is going together and not just following the leader. In 1962, there's a story about the President John F. Kennedy visiting NASA for the first time. They took him around the offices and he met a janitor who was pushing a broom down a hallway. The President turned to the janitor and he said, uh, oh, hi, how are you? What's your name? Got chatting to him. And he said, oh, so what is it that, that you do for NASA? And the janitor said, 
I'm putting a man on the moon. Somebody did a bit of research into this, whether this story is true or apocryphal. And they said that we, don't, we couldn't find the janitor. We don't know if that actual story actually happened. But what is true about that is that NASA had 400,000 employees. And every single employee, from the astronauts to the engineers to the secretaries to the janitors and the intern, were all singularly focused. Is a professor of management who researched this, and he said even the people who were quite far removed from this famous goal reported feeling an incredible connection to this idea. I'm putting a man on the moon. Rather than talking about, oh, I'm fixing electrical wiring, or I'm stitching spacesuits, or I am mopping the floors, he said, my research showed me that they would actually identify their work as and putting a man on the moon. I think that's what good leadership is. And that's what going together is. In one respect, it's the opposite of following a leader, isn't it? Because whether you're sweeping as the president walks around the corner, whether you're stitching a spacesuit or whether you're wearing that spacesuit, we're all in it together. We're putting a man on the moon. And as I just come to an end, I wonder if that's the task for us this morning. What's the task that we can play? What's the part that we can play in this 2030 vision? What's your role in putting a man on the moon? When we talk about getting involved, I've had loads of conversations over the last couple of weeks, particularly about what it means to get involved, to go together. And I think there are some people who say to me, well, I'm not sure what my role is anymore. I joined the church when it was much smaller and I felt like I was needed to run all the stuff and to volunteer. And now I come on a Sunday and and people talk about, you know, the debt advice that we do and the benefits advice and the people that work there and all the people who are doing all this stuff during the week. And And somebody said to me last week, I'm not sure I'm needed anymore. I'm not sure there's a role for me anymore because you've got this this big staff team. And as I said to that person last week, that is 100% not true for many different reasons. For a start, we've got a half-time immigration advisor, uh, a guy called Sam. He's brilliant, absolutely superb at his job. But he is so overloaded that if we could double his hours tomorrow he would already have too many clients. And if we could take on another Sam the day after that, we'd already have too many clients. We set up a debt advice center. That was my first job in Oasis. Just over 10 years ago, I started running that debt advice center and the food bank and a few other bits and pieces. And that work has just grown. Again, it's really sad to say that a job like the debt advice center manager role has increased and got busier over the years. But we do take on a lot of people in this local area who have got struggles in that area. I was talking to Jay, who's the guy who runs that this week, and I said, how are you getting on? And he said, I can't take on any new clients. We're at capacity, the waiting list is full, we can't go any further. Now, that's a role that a number of people here have done over the years. Danielle came up this morning. Danielle was a volunteer debt advisor for years before working for Oasis. Matt, who you would have seen walking across there, pushing a buggy with 17 kids in it, he was a volunteer debt advisor. We have had people who have been involved in that way because there's always a role to play, and not just a role, 
to play about volunteering for other people's stuff, but leading stuff too. Jay and Sam only have a job because of a church volunteer. Those of you who have been around for a while will know the story that we often tell about how the food bank started, which was with somebody who had another job coming to church on a Sunday and saying, I really want to do something about those people in the area who can't afford to eat. And so we created an idea. We'd, um, we'd give out 10 bags of food uh, over a Christmas holiday to some families in the primary school around the corner that we run. And off the back of that, in January, we sat down and we said, what are we going to do about this? It's a bigger, deeper problem than this. And that led to the Waterloo Food Bank, which now, again, sadly, feeds thousands upon thousands of people every year. Is that a role for you? Is there something, a passion that you have, that you would love to bring to us and see if we can help you to realize that? And then the other thing that I sometimes hear is, if you can't give up your job and volunteer 40 hours a week, or if you haven't got the couple of hours a week every week to be a debt advisor or to do whatever else it is, then where do I fit? Somebody I was speaking to a couple of weeks ago who's on the leadership team said, I kind of feel like I fit into to that position at the moment. She said, I'm working so hard. I go to bed so early. I can't do any more than just be here on a Sunday. That is about as much commitment as I can give at the moment. And she said, I worry that we give people the impression that unless you can give up your time, unless you can throw in your job and come and be a full-time debt advice center manager or whatever it is, she said, I worry that we give the impression that those people aren't as welcome. If that is the case, please hear this. Whether you can give a minute, an hour, 40 hours a week, or whether all you can do because everything else you've, going on, you've got going on is get here on a Sunday morning and then hopefully take away something that will sustain you for the next seven days. That is wonderful. That is totally fine. We are here for that too. Years ago, um, before I started working here, um, when our kids were really small and life just felt like it was utter chaos for most of the time. We had a guy come and speak here, and he was a, a visiting speaker, and he talked about um, spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices. And we were away for the weekend, and I remember listening to the podcast as I was jogging to work. I used to jog to work in those days because it was the only time I had in a week to do any exercise. And I remember running to King's Cross from Camberwell, listening to this podcast about all these spiritual disciplines, about how you should set aside time in your calendar and quiet times and all this kind of stuff. And I was getting more and more annoyed because as much as I loved the idea and this guy was a great speaker, I was just running thinking, I'm currently running to work because it's the only time I've got to do any exercise. And I didn't sleep last night because we got small kids and all this kind of stuff. And then in the middle of him saying something about all these wonderful spiritual disciplines, he said, oh, oh, there's something I forgot to say. Oh, my Apple Watch is trying to join in. Um, he said, oh, there's something I forgot to say. If you've got small kids, ignore all this. Ignore the entire talk. There'll come a time in a few years from now when, listen back to this, and you can do this stuff. But at the moment, just get through it. And then he talked about other people who are in similar situations. It's not for everybody all the time. If all you can do, if all you've got capacity for is to come here on a Sunday and try and take these lessons into the rest of your week, whatever that week looks like. We're here for that. We care about you in your position, 
with whatever time you have, whatever job you do, whatever space you're in, whatever is going on for you with your family and friends, we care about you and who you are much more than we care about what you can bring and how you can volunteer. I've already talked for too long. I've told too many stories I wasn't going to tell, but I'll just end with this. There's an old African proverb which we've said a lot of times here. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. It can be easy, I think, to be a spectator, to take a few weeks out, to maybe move on to another church when this one currently isn't working out or doesn't give you exactly what you want. But if we are going to achieve anything, if we're going to get anywhere near delivering this big 2030 vision that we've talked about, we need to do it together. So I wonder whether this morning is the morning to commit to giving it another go, to showing up on time, to leaving, replying to that WhatsApp message until the end of the service, to join a small group if you've got capacity for that, finally get around to setting up that standing order, volunteering for something. Whatever it is that you can bring to this vision over the next seven years, do it. Because we need to do this together. There's strength in diversity. We need each other. We all need to pull together. Because we're only going to realize this vision if we commit to each other and to going together. I'm just going to invite Simon Brackup, who's going to pray for us. And then we're going to run into this church forum. So what we're going to do is I'm going to uh, pass this and another microphone around. So if you've got any questions that you'd like to ask of me or Dave, then do that. Also, we're going to pass around the uh, paper and pens here. Uh, and then, yeah, we'll still endeavor to end at about half 12-ish, just so that the kids volunteer team don't shout at me. Um, and yeah, we'll, um, we'll pass those things around while Simon prays for us. So, ooh. so as Nathan said, uh, we're about to go into the church forum, but just before we do, let's pray together in response to what Nathan's told us. Uh, maybe if you feel comfortable to close your eyes, and I will just pray for us quickly before we start the, before we start the forum. Maybe take a moment to think about where you see yourself over the next seven years, where you see this church your vision for this community and for this city. Maybe take a moment to think about your part in the vision for Oasis. Lord, I would ask that you may make us bold and radical in our thoughts and visions and receptive and ambitious to what you're calling us to do. Drive us forward and give us a glimpse of your vision for this church and how we can play our part. May we here at Oasis embody community without borders that is radically inclusive and relentlessly ambitious. Lead us and guide us, encourage us and open doors for this church that we may enter through them. I ask that now that you may inspire us in our questions and comments, that we may truly go together on this journey as a church.
and that we may come as we are with all our diversity, our other commitments, our skills and talents, and our passions. May we grow into the church that you want us to be, constantly changing and evolving to become the church you created us to be. And may we always remain rooted in love for all those around us. Amen. Great. Nathan, are you going to lead us in the next section? So, Simon has uh, a microphone and Gareth has a microphone. Um, Dave's going to come and grab this microphone. Um, thanks, Dave. So, while you are thinking, uh, if you've got any questions that you'd like to write down, you can pass those to any of our willing and wonderful runners. Um, and I wondered if, while we uh, had a couple of minutes to think about those, Dave, I just wondered about whether you could talk to us really briefly about the role that Oasis plays in the wider Oasis, because I was going to talk about that, then I looked at that clock over there and realised I should probably not do so. Um, yeah, so um, we're part of a big family called Oasis, which is, works right around the world and uh, all over the UK as well. So um, we, we, because Steve was the minister here previously and Steve was the founder of Oasis, have played a really important role in the life of Oasis, frankly. So lots of the things that we've learned in this community or developed in this community or lots of the vision in this community or even some of the theology we've developed together in this community has impacted and shaped the rest of Oasis. So I guess as we think about the 2030 vision, I think it's really quite important, not just for us in this community and for us as a congregation, but for Oasis generally. So lots of our thinking about what education should look like have sort of spawned out of some of the things we've done here in this community. Um, and we now run 52 schools together around the country. Um, lots of the thinking we've done around theology, and Steve being in the media talking about that, has spawned out of lessons we've learned out of this community, and it's impacted all of Oasis. Lots of the things we talked about, the food bank and the, um, some of the food surplus stuff, lots of the things that we've learned about how to do that type of work, we've learned in this community and has spawned to all of Oasis. And, and vice versa, actually. So there's great stuff that's been learned in other Oasis communities that I think we can inherit here as well. But um, we sometimes talk about this hub sort of in, in my work context as being the like founding hub, the foundational hub of Oasis. Um, and you know, sometimes that's really helpful language, sometimes that's unhelpful language. But um, I think we've got a role to play, not, not just in terms of what we want our vision to be here in this community, but in terms of shaping Oasis beyond us, in terms of some of the like vision we can inject into the whole great big movement of Oasis. So there are, you know, we, you probably already know this, but there are 30,000 students that are part of our family in the UK, primary school students and secondary school students, and then there are all of their parents, and then there are tens of thousands of community members in all the other communities we work in around the country. So, like, we could have a vision for our little bit here, but we could also have some vision for well, what's our role to play in that great big movement of Oasis uh, around the country and around the world, too. Yeah, great. Thanks, Dave. Um, anyone want to be brave enough to ask the first question or the first comment? Caroline, go for it. Much easier than writing it down. Right. Um, so I'm really interested in Restore and St Martin's in the Field School in Lambeth, of which I used to do some work in as well. 
Um, and I don't know, now that I don't see Steve so often, how I find out how mm. to get involved in those projects, whether that be professionally, because both of them fit what I do, or personally. Mm. So what's the route? Mm. So restore. So restore is um, um, you, we've probably talked about this a bit, but it's um, something called a secure school that we're going to go open together as part of the Oasis family. It's going to open in February, March next year, um, and it's going to be a secure school in every possible sense of the word secure. So it's going to be secure in terms of there will be locks on the door because they're going to be young people that have been sentenced to be with us. So it's going to be like a new version of a youth offenders institute but it's going to be secure therapeutically it's going to be secure relationally it's going to be secure emotionally it's going to be a revolution frankly in the way we do um youth uh, prison youth offenders units in the uk so to answer the question um there's somebody called claire um claire wilson who works for oasis and claire's the sort of lead person setting up restore and at the moment we're just in the process of designing what it's going to look like and recruiting 200 people to be part of it um, and so Claire is the answer. In terms of I need to put you in touch with Claire, she's the person that can connect you into absolutely everything that's going on in Restore. St Martin's in the field, a bit more complicated. So um, it's a project we're going to run in Lambeth together. We're just at the very, very early stages of thinking about what we might do there, um, at the early stages of negotiating how we might use that space. So the jury's out at the moment on quite what we use the space for, so it'll be a little bit more complicated right at the moment to get very heavily involved in that, other than Steve's the person leading on that, so I think talking to Steve about that is probably the best first thing. But, yeah, I can put you in touch with Claire. In fact, if there are other people interested in Restore, because it is something that loads of people are interested in, we could make sure that other people know how to get in touch mm. with Claire. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, uh, have we got, oh, we've got some written questions making their way down here. Uh, anybody else, while we go through, while we grab a couple of, um, uh, we'll grab a few written questions. Anybody else want to be brave enough to put their hand up and ask them? Um, yeah. Thank you. We've got new light bulbs, and I think they're pretty dark, aren't they? Can't really see back there. Hi. Um, I'm fairly new here, but um, <clears throat> I was at a Christian ladies' breakfast last Saturday, and the visiting speaker was suddenly incredibly damning of LGBTQI. And she cited the Christian Institute Salt and Light in Education videos to watch on YouTube, which I did. And because you have schools, I'd quite like to know how teachers deal with that situation, because I was getting so angry, but in the end I just had to walk away and then when I wrote back and said how I felt after the meeting, they said, well, we just believe in the infallible word of God, full stop. <laughs> <laughs> so being that we're in an academy, how mm. do you deal with that? Or is there a way that I can find out how the teachers here teach the children? Because the inclusive churches I've been visiting for the last 18 months, this is the only one where they have children. Mm. None mm. of the other congregations I've been to have any children at all. Mm. Um, I think there are probably, well, there are a number of uh, shorter answers that I would give. The first would be to say that um, we definitely wouldn't show any videos that the Christian Institute have put together <laughs> on anything, actually, let's just, not just on this one. Um, the second is that even though, um, and again, Dave can talk to this a bit as well, that even though we, uh, Oasis Community Learning runs 
all these schools across the UK, 54 of them. We don't run them as faith schools, so there's no kind of um, inherent, you know, if you come to this church, you are more likely to be able to get a space in here or anything. We run them. Things like the admissions criteria is done just alongside um, the way in which the local authority would normally do that here, which is, you know, all the things you would imagine, closeness to the front door, whether you've got a sibling here, whether there's a special educational need that we can provide for. So from that point of view, um, all of our academies are set up structurally like your kind of normal local authority schools would be as opposed to being like a faith school. Within that we have, we do follow quite a lot of the you know, standard kind of curriculum practice, although we have written our own Oasis curriculum which we run over the years, but as you'd imagine from you know, everything else that you would see here on a Sunday, that curriculum is completely inclusive. Um, and certainly wouldn't be kind of spouting anything that the Christian Institute would put on it. And then, the, and then from a church point of view, on a, um, from a kid's point of view, the, we run on Sundays, but all these kids run out in this direction and that direction. All of that is done uh, under an ethos or an idea which we call philosophy for children. Uh, and the idea behind that is that it's a questioning thing, so it isn't a kind of black and white doctrine like I was brought up with, you know, you will learn the memory verse and you will recite it back to me next Sunday and all that kind of thing. And it isn't so much about just directing kids in there, this is, these are the things that you must learn more. It's more a, a, an inquiry, an opening a, a line of inquiry. We do do the kind of fundamental biblical truths within that, but again, as you'd imagine, when we do talk about some of these verses, some of these passages, some of these ideas, like the idea of inclusion, then we talk about it in a very different way. Um, there is somebody who isn't here this morning who, uh, who is gay and taught about inclusion on Pride Weekend a couple of years ago in our kids' church. Um, and I saw him at the end and he said, I just about managed to hold it together until the kids had left. And then I broke down in tears because I could not believe that I was in a church where in kids' church, I was able to say inclusion means LGBT inclusive. And that's why I was at Pride yesterday and that's what this means. And I could do that and I could share that in kids' church. I sometimes visit the network store uh, when they have a lunchtime meeting. So there are possibilities that they can be grouped, and because of the inclusion factor within Oasis, they don't feel disassociated, and I think that's important. Thanks, Dave. Um, let's do any more hands up for now, and then we'll jump to. Some of these questions we've got written down. Yeah, can you hear me? Mm. Yeah, um, I was sent to a special school um, mm. because of chaotic upbringing. And I found what really worked with us uh, as from seven to 17, because it was, um, that's the way it was. Um, the teachers actually asked us if they wanted us as their pupils. They didn't have uh, an institutional approach where I'm your teacher, you're my students, and that's just the way it is. They tried to establish um, a one-to-one -one relationship mm. with um, the kids and the young adults. And they used some of the, the conversations as part of the lessons. Um, I was thinking about the secure school. I think what institutions do, I was thinking, meditating about it, is they tend to use a skeleton key approach. One model fits all. 
Well, I think what you need is uh, a, a key that fits each keyhole, uh, that fits each heart and mind. So, and that, I think that's the way the kids learn when they feel they've got that personal connection. Mm, I think mm. that's where real knowledge comes from. Mm. Yeah, that's, thank you. That's what yeah. really... Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Mm. I, as the son of a secondary school teacher and the little brother of a secondary deputy head, I could talk educational theory all day long, but I wonder if there's uh, any more kind of Waterloo-based kind of questions that we might um, want to go through. Um, James. I've, I've been part of church uh, most of my life, and every church um, encourages people to do voluntary work. So I've done a lot of voluntary work, uh, but I kind of feel now some of it was quite abusive that I should have been paid for it. So what, what I find in churches is a lot of professional people come to church and uh, they volunteer, so they've got good jobs with good money and they've got housing and everything, all the rest of it. Uh, but but what, what I feel now is they're actually undercutting people, poor people, who could have a job. So I would rather that we um, pay um, to create employment rather than undercutting um, people who would need a job. Um, so that's mm, my, yeah. my point, really. Yeah, thanks, James. I think... Um well, I, I would hope that what we do here is, is a bit of both and, really, that there are volunteering opportunities for those who want to give and, you know, want to, to serve in that way. But also, you know, we've, in the last 10 years or so, we've gone to a point now where we employ 30-something people in this local community. You know, I'm one of those, Mike's at the back, he's one of those. There's a number of people who would be here, and I, and I guess more people who have been part of that staff team over the years as well. I think it's really important that we can create employment, particularly in, a, you know, in a, a place where it can be difficult to get work and an environment where it's getting more difficult to get work. But I think equally at the same time as that, um, we, as you would imagine, don't have infinite resources and so we do rely quite heavily on volunteers just because there isn't the capacity to do all of those things. And I would hope that volunteers will learn and grow and become a better part of this community through that. Again, one of the things that I didn't say this morning is that, um, you know, generally when you're the minister, people come up to you when they knew and they say, how can I join a small group? Um, and uh, I always say, do you want to join a small group? Which can often seem like a strange way to respond to that question. But the reason I say that is because for some people, they do want to join a small group, and that's brilliant. We've got some great small groups. They are a great way of getting to know this community and building relationship. But equally, for some people, they don't actually want to join a small group. They just want to do that because they've been kind of conditioned to, to say, this is how I get involved in a church. So Dan is over there. I often tell this story about Dan, that the first Sunday that he came, he said this to me, and I said, do you actually want to join a small group? And he said, not really, I just want to get to know people. And then I said, well, we're short of people on tea and coffee. And so the following Sunday, I turn up at nine o'clock, and then I walk past the people setting up for tea and coffee, and Dan setting up for tea and coffee, because he heard that, heard that kind of, that, that question about whether we could do volunteering and whether volunteering was a better way in. Um, and that's how he ended up getting involved. And now you will very regularly see him on a Sunday morning, years and years after that, uh, still arriving really early to either do tea and coffee or to set up. So I do think that there are real benefits to volunteering as well, and it can be a route into the community as well as, um, as, well as I understand the, the employment angle on it as well. 
Shall we try and take a few of these questions that we've got written down? Um, may I, oh, sorry, may I just um, add an amendment to James's great vision? Because I was nodding my head off like one of those dogs in the back of a car um, with the bobbly thing on it. So thank you for saying about that, James, because a lot of us do give away our belongings, our time, our money. I mean, I've sat here and put 20 pence in the tin and I've put, you know, 20 quid in the tin. You know, that's how unstable my life is. Um, not knowing, you know, if next week I'll be able to come or not. Um, I'm still here 10 years after. And uh, my story is I'm an artist and I, for the last year, I was running art club here, which was fantastic. Nathan named it. I got to, um, Cass Art gave us a ton of materials. And just to say that Cass Art are still donating to us if we can go and collect it. But something went wrong and unfortunately it had to end. It wasn't me, it wasn't the people that were joining. Um, it went wrong and I was completely powerless. And I took it as a natural break, God saying, right, and you've done enough. You've done everything you should have. You've delivered. People are happy. Um, so I had my trip to Australia to go to. I had a fabulous time. I felt very blessed. I had a rest. I know this is a long story. Um, I felt very blessed. It was recovery, finally, that I needed from covid uh, lockdowns, waited three years for that, um, and came back and was so full of gratitude to God for that break. I felt like I'd gone to a desert like Jesus has, and came home and completely gave away the majority of my belongings from my flat. So it, it gave me a new perspective. Um, so I still ended up giving away, you know, I had, you know, I thought I, I was empty, I was run out, and I come home and then I'm taking bag after bag to the charity shop and there's still two bags left. I'm wondering what to do with the rest of my artwork. So now I feel like I've got a flow and I've got, I'm clear, but I'd feel powerless here at Oasis. I feel powerless still. Um, as I say, there's enormous potential, you know, I've got talent, Steph's got great talent, stuff that Steph was designing, I mean, incredible, if you ever talk to Steph, I mean, golly, <laughs> the stuff she knows, the stuff she can make, the stuff she repairs, the stuff she designs, it was a great opportunity for us to get to know each other, like you're saying about the small group. I want to come to a small group, no, but I'd like to get to know each other. That's what our club was like. And so, what's the next thing? Well, I love Australia, I was saying to Nathan, you know, um, there's a lot of us LGBT people, a lot of us still recovering from COVID, wanting to get out of poverty. And what James was saying, and I'll close now, is some of us do need to be paid. We do, need, we do need to get put back in the pot. 
So my question to you, Nathan, is how can that happen? Who can we talk to if we do want to fundraise? If we do want to find employers mm. out there? I mean, you do have Chase Manhattan Bank, for instance, that come along. They've got billions. <laughs> yeah, you know, so the it's, a, it's an application. It's a sitting down on a computer and writing an application and having permission to do that. We can get salaries for people, so let's do that. Thanks, Anne. Yeah, there's a few uh, things that well, we should talk specifically, I think, about um, some of those kind of things. Yeah, I do think the, um, the funding thing is probably one of the biggest things for us, one of the biggest challenges for us um, this year as well as over the next few years. Um, how we run a, a financial budget from September to September because when you run a load of schools, it makes more sense to do it that time rather than do it April to April. Um, and so consequently, we only just started putting that together over the last, uh, well, we're a couple of weeks into it is what I should say. Um, and there are some real challenges for us over the next year. If we want to carry on doing the stuff that we're currently doing, let alone to expand, then we are going to have to track down some of these banks and try and get some money off them uh, or some other corporates or some, yeah, fill in some more grant applications and get some more cash from that because, you know, the, there are significant challenges out there at the moment. We've always said with this church community that that what we use it for is kind of seed funding. We, we say the money that, that you all give, which is amazing, week by week or on a standing order, we could say, right, we're going to use that to pay for a minister, pay for a kids worker, a youth worker, a church secretary and pay the bills and then that's it. Or we could do with that money what we do do with that money, which is to use it as something which um, enables us to go out and get some more money and therefore make a bit more of a difference in the community. So we use that income to turn it into something that looks like about a million and a half pounds worth of income um, each year. However, a lot of that income isn't secured for this next 12 months, and so that is a, a, a real challenge for us in the next few months in particular. Um, aware that we said that we'd try and finish in a few minutes, Dave, I wonder what questions have you got, whether there's anything else that we should pick up from the questions that people have written down. Well, I've only got one in front of me, but um, this question's about just how we should influence policy beyond us. Um, and uh, so it's an interesting question, I will answer that at the end, but we, we've talked a fair bit about, in the church leadership team sort of coming out of the weekend, this sort of sense of how do we build, how do we radically build relationships together as, as a church congregation, but like into this wider community. So, you know, it sort of ties into a little bit of what James was saying, like how do we actually genuinely build depth of relationship together across this community us and then this this whole community here and so I, th I think there's going to be a fair amount in the 2030 vision about how we go about that task what different things can we do how can we really build depth of relationship together um and then secondly how do we you know um our vision is sort of in one sense the same vision we've always had it's like what does the kingdom of god look like um and there's plenty more to do isn't there like um so you know just off the top of our heads we were talking the other day about well we there should be like better health care in this community there should be better opportunity for elderly people in this community we should take our education in the schools and really think about well, what does education look like born out of our theology etc so and the reason I start there is because I think there's some stuff about radically building relationships together and there's some stuff about the things we will do together. And then in the light of that, what can we say to others? How can we share what we know with other people? How can we actually 
lobby for the education system in the UK to be better based on the stuff we know, based out of our theology? How can we go and argue for like better healthcare in communities? How can we talk about how you do community cohesion together in a place? And I, I think there's only point in doing any of that influence stuff, and I really think we should, but if it's sort of tied into the core of who we are and the core of our vision, otherwise it's sort of influence for the sake of influence. Um, but I think our strategy, our 2030 vision, should still have that in there. I don't think we should settle for, here's the stuff we do, how can we do it nicely together? I think we should be pushing the boundaries of how do we take what we learn and try and shape the world beyond us. So I think our vision needs to include that. Yeah, great. Thanks, Dave. Um, there are loads here that we're not going to get to. Um, but just a couple of quick ones. What are the top three practical initiatives that need to be implemented first? And I would push that one back, I think, really. I would say two things. Number one, that's the next step of this, is now how we take it and uh, work out how we're going to be successful at it, basically. What's the next step? Is The next step is working out what those goals are, what the practical work that we're going to do, and then how are we going to check back on that and make sure that we know whether we've succeeded or not. But I, yeah, the pushback from me would be, I think part of this conversation is we want you to come up with some of those answers. Or if you've got, like I said earlier, something that you're really passionate about that you think could be part of that um, vision of transforming Waterloo, bringing more of the kingdom of God to Waterloo, then come back and tell me. So I've got not just the top three, but a top 30, I think, that are practical initiatives that we could implement. But part of the reason behind this forum is, yeah, if you've got any more ideas around that, then do feel free to come and grab me. We'd genuinely love to hear from you. I'd love for you to be part of that. Um, that is probably all we've got time for. There's one more question here, which I just thought it might be worth uh, ending with. Somebody has written, what can we pray for, for the church? Um, and I think we've talked quite a lot here over many years about what prayer is and what prayer isn't. And it will come as no surprise uh, for any of you who've been around for a while to hear me say that um, when I think about the question of what can we pray for for the church, um, I don't think that I would be giving you a shopping list and that your task and my task is to get on my knees but next to my bed every night, ask God for those things and then get into bed, lie down, fall asleep. I think there's something in prayer which is that some of the answers to those prayers are worked out by us rolling up our sleeves, getting our hands dirty and getting stuck in. So I always see it as kind of twofold. I will pray for the things that I really want God to make a difference in in this world. And then the response to that is that then I have to open my eyes, get up the next morning and then go to work on it as well. Um, I think this vision, as Dave said, of community transformation in Waterloo is still the vision that we hold, this Christ-centered vision of all of those things. Um, and yeah, my question would be um, that it isn't just a matter of asking God for that. It's about rolling up our sleeves and getting our hands dirty and doing some of that work as well. Mm -hmm.